0: Hello and welcome to IFG Live. I'm Joe Owen. I lead the Institute's work on Brexit and I will be chairing this event on extending the Brexit transition period. A year ago, MPs were packed into the House of Commons with backbenchers forcing through legislation. Um, Theresa May and Jeremy Corbyn were in cross-party talks looking to find a compromise deal and there were very real questions about whether or not Brexit would ever happen. A lot has changed. The party leaders for a start, Boris Johnson's government has won a big majority, and the UK has formally left the EU. And since then, coronavirus has struck, leaving the Commons chamber empty. But there is still a similar question swirling around. Do the UK and the EU need more time? The two sides have now got just under nine months to agree a future relationship before the transition period comes to an end at 11pm on New Year's Eve this year. So what does coronavirus mean for that timetable? Is there still enough time to get everything done? Was there ever enough time to get everything done? Joining me to discuss those questions and many more, I have a wonderful panel. Catherine Barnard is a Professor of EU Law at Cambridge and a Senior Fellow at UK in a Changing Europe. Shankar Singham is CEO and Chair of Competer. He's also advised government ministers, heads of state, senior officials and CEOs on trade policy, amongst other things. Ali Rennison is Head of EU and Trade Policy at the Institute of Directors, and Fabian Zuleg is Chief Economist and CEO of the European Policy Centre, a Brussels-based EU think tank that looks at EU policy and institutions. I'm delighted that they're all here to join us. I'd also like to thank everyone who submitted questions to this event. I will use as many of them as possible, even if I paraphrase slightly. So let's get started and unpack this big question of whether or not the UK should extend the transition period. And I want to start by focusing on the negotiations and where they're up to. Catherine, could you sketch out where you think the two sides are at kind of attempting to agree a new deal and the timelines that they're working to
1: well we had to work backwards really because um the withdrawal agreement says at the moment uh that the transition period or implementation period as the government calls it expires on the 31st of december now you've got trade negotiations taking place and it's really important to remember that from a legal point of view and the eu is very much a construct of law uh that trade negotiations need to have a legal basis and a legal basis dictates uh, what procedure this needs to follow. Why is this relevant? Because the more ambitious the trade agreement is, the more likely it is to be what's called a mixed agreement. And that means it's got to be agreed by the EU, probably unanimously, and also by the national and regional parliaments. There's a really practical problem at the moment that a number of national parliaments aren't sitting. So it's very difficult for them to actually agree to anything at all all of that might point to a very slim down trade deal, which is more likely anyway, basically on goods. And if it's just a trade deal on goods and not a great deal else, then that could be done by the EU alone without the member states having to ratify it. And that could be done under Article 207. Long and the short of it is that something really needs to be agreed by September-October time um, to give the legislative process uh, time to go through if there is such a thing.
0: Okay, so we kind of we don't even have the full period up until the end of the year for negotiations. We need to try and lock something down by September. and I think that's what the government put in their white paper, their ambition to try and agree something by September. Shankar, I wanted to bring you on in this and get your assessment of where you think the negotiations are at and what kind of effect coronavirus has had on them.
2: Yeah. um, Well, I think, you know, before coronavirus hit, um, the parties were actually probably a lot closer than some had suggested. Um, There are differences that, you know, you can categorise as either unbridgeable differences or bridgeable differences. And if you look at those main ones, they're things like the level playing field um with respect to state aids, labour, environmental rules, regulatory issues, uh governance fisheries, the Northern Ireland Protocol. Uh on level playing field, I think there are there are there is certainly uh scope for uh, what I would call bridgeable differences. So if the uh UK were to be required, and it's said that it would, um adopt its own anti-subsidy regime if the EU uh, accepted that and accepted some sort of uh, disciplines on what would be in that anti-subsidy regime and some sort of dispute settlement, then I think there's a way forward. If the EU says, no, you, you, you have to be under EU state aid's uh, rules and the jurisdiction of the European Court of Justice, then I think that that then becomes a unbridgeable um, uh, difference. Um, and similarly, with labour and environment, if... Um, uh, the UK would accept not lowering labor environmental standards for trade advantage, uh and the EU were to accept that, then I think we're in the in the realm of a of a of a bridgeable difference. Uh the unbridgeable difference is, um I don't think an extension of time or, you know, any further time would really help you. These are sort of binary choices uh that the parties have to make. And I think the difference that coronavirus has has sort of done to all of this is I think it's going to clarify in the party's minds um, what is actually important, um, whether differences in governance structure are really crucial uh, or whether we can't get to some sort of agreement on fisheries, uh, for example. Um, because I think the economic hole that we are going to be in once we emerge from our various lockdowns and uh, suspensions of the economic uh, you know um, of the economic systems uh, is going to be so great that um, I think it's going to, very much focus people's minds on things that really are actual negotiating differences as opposed to um you know games playing on both sides that you might
0: see in a in a trade negotiation fabian is that this kind of assessment from brussels are eu counterparts sharing that view of where negotiations
3: are at uh, i think the view in brussels is that essentially uh, an extension to the transition period uh, is almost inevitable? Um, that in the current situation, um, it doesn't make sense to try to push this over the line uh, within a very limited time frame, a time frame uh, which was already considered to be extremely short uh, for getting any agreement. Um, there are practical issues um, many different practical issues it is not only the question of having face time between the negotiators although that also i think is a major issue uh, we don't have political negotiations um, we can have some technical negotiations but they're not going to get us anywhere um, and i think uh, we also have the whole political setup focused on uh, something else, um, something which is more important, um, which also means that there will be very little political space uh, to make uh, any kind of concessions, any kind of deals um, to do with the Brexit process. Um, I think on top of all of that, um, there's the economic consideration, um, which is that uh, if you are... Uh, In a major economic crisis, um, regardless of what your beliefs might be about uh, the nature of the long term relationship, uh, to add uh, another economic shock uh, to that mix. Um, at some point um, either during this year or at the end of this year um, just seems reckless. Um, so I think from a European perspective, um, a uh, extension to transition is the only option which makes sense. If you go in that direction then it would need to be done um, before the end of June deadline. Uh, we should have a decision, um, it might be possible to do something after that deadline, but it becomes certainly far more complicated than it is um, at this stage. Um, but uh, in the end, uh, Brussels, the member states, know that this is not going to happen if the UK doesn't ask for it.
0: Yeah, and I want I want to come to both the kind of the practical question of the how do you manage the practical changes of Brexit, and also the the process that would need to be would need to go through uh, a little bit later. I think there's a quote in the Guardian from this afternoon of uh, supposed EU sources saying uh, the timetable was, uh, in quote, already hopelessly optimistic and is now like a fantasy land. Um, Would that sum up
3: relatively fairly the the view in Brussels? Yes, I think so. And I I think there's also a a real lack of understanding of um, why there seems to be such a need Um, to try to stick to the old deadline um, when it is clear that the framework, the situation has completely changed uh, in the situation we're in, which is a major global crisis uh, where um, we will all be struggling with the consequences of that. Um, To just persist uh, um, on um, a political deadline, which was set before the crisis hit, uh, just seems reckless. So we'll get into
0: kind of options for extension, but Ali, I wanted to bring you in now and kind of get your sense of what business and the business community makes of where things are heading and the pace that they're moving in. And then particularly want to pick up just on the practical changes at the end of this year and just how challenging uh, they are looking when you add on coronavirus on top of the changes that were already going to be necessary as a result of Brexit.
4: Glibest way I can probably sum that up is in February I wrote a piece for our director magazine talking about you know um, new administration, new government, the need to really make preparation, name of the game. And once the detail of whatever changes were going to come through did come through. And within, I think that went to print at the end of February. And I've had quite a few members email me back to say, you know, we won't be looking at this in any shape or form. So your your publication article might be out of date. And naturally it was because at the moment, um, you know, people are just looking at life support just to get through, um, trying to, you know, I'm not going to say that there are not businesses for whom it's sometimes difficult to convince them that there are changes coming that they do need to prepare for that will not, particularly if they're not used to procedures um, uh, that are being changed, uh, prepare in advance. But particularly now, I think it's really difficult to actually for for business organizations to try and push business to look at this now um, because it looks almost, I suppose... Um, disrespectful and and as if one has disregard for the huge, huge existential issues that they're going through. Now, I think it's important to say on the one hand, though, that that doesn't mean that the eye should be taken off the ball. Um, You know, There needs to be a clarity of messaging coming out of government about this, and the sooner the better. Uh, I, I think there's a difference between what you need to do in terms of the negotiations and what you need for business, because very often, I think there's lots of conflations going on. The, the thing that business is perhaps most interested in with respect of the um, argument about transition and whether to extend or not is not so much about how long the negotiation should take, but making sure that whenever the changes are clear, whether it's changes agreed to in implementing the Northern Ireland Protocol in a no deal, no FTA, no free trade deal sense, whether that's um, implementing in a sense of, you know, HMRC says these are the changes that you now have to make and those are far from clear about the day one uh, border operating model it's very difficult to go to a business and say, prepare without having all those things in place. And that's in a normal setting at the moment. Um, you know, if you just to take one example, the log- logistics industry is in crisis for reasons more than one. And I think this is what makes tackling the, 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 the challenge so difficult, particularly when you extend it out to the Brexit saga. If you look at logistics they're having huge challenges because on the one hand, demand has completely dropped off. Uh, let's say for people who were shipping freight, moving freight around for retail, where spending has dropped off, consumer spending has dropped off a cliff. Um, but they're under pressure like never before to deliver this sort of huge spike in, uh, deliver to the huge spike in demand in um, you know essential products. So if you were to talk to a food business right now, um uh or even electronics business or a business that is seeing a drop-off in demand, unlike those two, because you have a lot of people now increasing their their food essentials and working from home so they need other items. Regardless, it would be very difficult to talk to business in any situation about stockpiling in six months' time because they don't even know if those supply routes are going to be the same as they are. So trying to do all of that and plan becomes very, very challenging. So I think just to sum that all up from a business perspective, the, the argument is less about, you know, whether the negotiations just, I, I think the negotiations should carry on as best as they're able to with the clear caveat that whenever changes are agreed, because it's very difficult to prepare in advance of changes that are as yet unknown, particularly once you start looking at the operationalization of the Northern Island protocol, it becomes very difficult to actually do anything right now from a business perspective. Um, so what we're saying is, is that, you know, If it's the only way that you can ensure that business and other end users have an adjustment period between those changes being known and being implemented, then of course, extending the transition has to be on the table. But it's purely from that angle that I think the business really, really has a voice on this.
0: Yeah. Okay. And there was one question we got actually emailed in from someone called Mark Casanova who wanted to know that, you know, you've talked about the industries, particularly logistics where... um, Uh, coronavirus and Brexit puts kind of double pressure on. But are there parts Mm. of the economy where actually if you are sort of in hibernation, if you like, as a result of coronavirus, does that make it easier to deal with the effects of Brexit changes at the end of the year? Assume we're still in this kind of holding pattern on coronavirus at that point.
4: I suppose in a very crude sense, uh, purely if you find yourself with less work on your hands, um, you have more time to plan. But then it comes back to the fundamental point of what are you planning for? And if you don't know, because at the moment, I mean, we have, for example, stats showing that um, and I was surprised by the extent that quickly that over half of iid members um, are are having and seeing a negative impact on their business because just of trade disruption due to coronavirus. So when you compound that with and now you need to plan for a potential disruption, um, if there is no FTA at the end of the year, fine, you have the basic, basic provisions in the withdrawal agreement that say this is what it defaults to. Um, but in terms of how that looks in practice, you know, there's a there's a reason why um, businesses don't tend to read legal text. It's you negotiate or you you agree what the changes are going to be, and then your domestic infrastructure systems, whether that's the customs and border agencies in different countries, they then transpose that into practical measures that you then need to comply with, and then business adjusts to it. Um, you're trying to upend it on its head uh, while you're trying to sort out your own response to the logistics nightmare at present. So the two things start to dovetail very quickly. And I think even if you were a business that had spare time on their hands to try, and in terms of going into hibernation plan for this, because of the unpredictable changes that are going on to supply chains at this time, it's very difficult, particularly without knowing what the changes agreed between the, and the UK are going to look like, whether that's through an FTA or not having an FTA it's very hard to think about six months down the line, even if you've gone into hibernation.
0: Yeah, okay. And Shankar, do you think this, this argument then um, about more time for the practicality, so even if we can get negotiations done, securing more time from the point at which the change is known to the point at which it comes into place, do you think that will be something that ministers will be sympathetic to? I mean, don't trade agreements often get phased in over time rather than kind of... Potentially weeks after they've been agreed in one big bang, as could be the case at the end of this year.
2: Yeah, I think those. Yeah, that's a, a slightly different approach. That's true, but um, I mean there is a difference between implementation of, of of whatever changes are agreed and the time period in which that will occur, and actually just getting the getting the agreement agreed. I think one of the problems for ministers and for the government will be the transition period. That essentially was the transition period negotiated prior to uh Johnson coming uh, into office um is is not um very favorable to the uk i mean it requires the uk to remain under the common uh, commercial policy it requires you know obviously if it's extended there would be further payment uh of money um, the you you're seeing now the UK government having a very different approach to the EU on things like ec- export restrictions for medical these sorts of products um, you've got potentially from the US uh, a whole set of um, uh, retaliatory tariffs and, and possibly other things and I think you know, we just have to see, you know, how often Pete Navarro is appearing on, on TV to know that you, the, the direction of travel of the Trump administration is not going to be to embrace, uh, you know, a, a spirit of cooperation and openness in response to coronavirus. It will be more, more tariffs, more uh, protection. Um, and so the UK, as long as it's under the common commercial policy, is going to be subject to all of that um you've also got the other negotiations that the uk wants to to do which are not uh on hold uh which are uh at least at the moment uh following you know the same timetables they were on before and the uk would want to have those negotiations in parallel uh if of course those negotiations started to slip those those other externals like the us deal and so forth then i think there would be an argument for ministers to say well actually you know we wanted to do all these negotiations in parallel what we don't necessarily want to have is have the eu negotiation go first because then we'll be in the same bind that we were in before, which is everyone else saying, well, we need to know what you look like with the EU before we decide uh, what we're going to do with you. So uh, I think that that, that's one set of um, things that ministers will will want to be um, uh, thinking about. Uh, But, you know, if we get to a point where uh, you know, for example, a second wave, for example, you know, we, we really don't know at the moment how the, the COVID-19 um, thing is going to pan out over the next, you know, we, we frankly don't know what's going to happen next week, let alone, you know, uh, in two or three months, some sort of recognition that there has been a pause in the global economy uh something like that that is a sort of recognition that this is a force majeure kind of event that no one contemplated. You know, I think that is that, that may possibly be um more attractive than extending a transition period that does put the UK in a in a difficult position, especially as it's extended, you know, the UK is, remains a rule taker um for that period. So it's a bit of a vulnerable position for the UK to be in at a very um incredibly difficult time. Perhaps a more difficult time in the global economy than, you know, we've really had, even even uh, worse than the uh, than the Great Depression. Uh, the longer the economy is suspended, the worse this is going to be. Um, and I think, bearing all of that in mind, the UK would want to um, a- accelerate um, uh, leaving the transition period so it can actually take some of the steps it feels it has to do in order to kickstart its own economy. Um, but I think also the, the... Sorry, I was going to say, that I think also because of the economic situation, I do think that there is going to be enormous pressure on both of these parties, not just from their own internal constituencies, but frankly from the rest of the world, to, um, to get on with it and get their act together and, and come to some sort of deal. Um, and I think that will be felt, assuming again, who knows, assuming that we start to come out of these lockdowns in some sort of, you know, reasonable time frame. you know, May, early May, hopefully. Um, if that starts to happen, then I think, you know, as we come out, as the economy starts to restart, there will be enormous pressure to, um,
0: to maintain um, these kinds of, to, to get these deals done. And so do you think then, so there's one argument of actually wanting to start to harness some of the benefits. And if those look like they are also being delayed, um, then there might be more openness to extending. And then if we end up in a similar position to this in lockdown, and the economy is really just kind of restarting in the autumn, um, ministers will not want, do you think ministers will be um, concerned about inflicting short-term disruption as a result of Brexit, just as the economy is getting back up and running in the run into Christmas. Because I mean, ministers have been upfront, haven't they, that there will be some disruption as a result of this change. Um, I guess the question is whether the um, whether the priorities have shifted now that they are not um, putting that in. They are not putting that disruption on an economy that's had a very normal year, um, and whether they would still want to go ahead with it christmas time this year
2: well i think you'd have to differentiate between the transition period under the terms of the withdrawal agreement and extending that and coming to some agreement and then giving business in a sort of extended period to implement some of these uh, agreements if indeed there is anything to uh, to implement and if there isn't anything to implement if if there is no um uh, further trade agreement which i still don't um see as happening um Especially in view of the economic crisis that we will be trying to avert, then I think you know we've had a you know one go round of uh, emergency measures um, that would be um, w- would then be applicable, and I think that's what you
0: will probably see. Okay, Catherine, I wanted to to ask you a question because we've talked a lot about the future relationship in the negotiations, and preparing for the implementation of that new relationship but we've also still got to implement the withdrawal agreement don't we and there's citizens rights and the irish protocol are two of the big ones we've touched a little bit on the irish protocol I mean, is there a sense that these tasks are being affected by coronavirus and concerns about the amount of time available by the end of the year to to get them all done?
1: Well, I think that's right. I think, um, I mean, the Northern Ireland uh, border issue is highly complex. And Ali's already flagged up just the very large number of difficulties that um, are being experienced there, just in working out what is actually required under the Northern Ireland protocol. But in respect of uh, citizens' rights, of course, the EU settled status scheme um, has already been um, set up and actually a very large number of people have already applied under it. But essentially, the three million or so who've applied are those who are tech savvy and um, have got the language skills necessary to apply. The people who haven't applied are the ones who don't tick those boxes. So the ones who are working in the fields in Cornwall, um, who don't have smartphones and don't have access to the Internet. And um, one of the um, unforeseen consequences of coronavirus is that the rather good helpline that the government set up to help people who were struggling with making applications um, has been shut down. And so as far as we can tell, numbers of applications for settled status have dropped off a cliff at the moment. Now, of course, um, they've got until um, June Uh, 2021 to apply but the question then is given that there's been virtually no attention given to this as an issue at the moment whether actually people will need longer because at the moment um, if they haven't applied by um, June 2021 they risk becoming illegal immigrants.
0: But that's something that the UK government can change without extending the transition period right if the UK government wanted to give eu citizens more time aren't they able to using uk law essentially
1: absolutely they can Um, but the problem is uh, totally understandably that the the whole might of the civil service is at the moment being focused on um addressing the many complications and um arising from coronavirus they're not focused on this one issue which is one issue of many
0: okay so we've kind of sketched out some of the reasons why extension to the transition might be needed some of the scenarios where it might not um Catherine I wanted to come back to you and just for you to kind of sketch out what is the process if the two sides decide that they do want extra time if we are still in this position in early June for example and they say okay we think we do need a little bit more time what's the process they would need to go through
1: well um you need to look at eu law and you need to look at domestic law as far as eu law is concerned article 132 of the withdrawal agreement is quite clear that the joint committee that's the committee comprised of representatives of the uk government and representatives of the eu uh, may before the 1st of july 2020 adopt a single decision extending the transition period for up to one or two years now the brevity of that provision is striking Um, It says nothing about who must ask. All we know is that um, they've got to agree. Um, It also says that the transition period can be extended for up to one or two years. So that would embrace, for example, um, a six month extension. Um, But The crucial wording is single decision. Let's say for argument's sake there is a request for a six-month extension that proves not to be long enough because of the legacy effects of coronavirus or because there is a second or third wave. Um, Then what happens if even more time is required? That's at the EU level. At the domestic level, things become slightly more complicated because you'll remember that the Conservative manifesto contained a commitment um, that the The Conservatives would not ask for an extension. And that um, commitment was more or less enshrined in law um, by the 2020 Act. Now, the 2020 Act is actually drafted in a slightly odd way. And the 2020 Act is also very short, but it says, and I'll just read it out because it's really short, it says a Minister of the Crown may not agree in the joint committee to an extension of the implementation period. An implementation period, as you know, is the government's preferred language for transition period. Now, there's a couple of ways of looking at it. You can say, well, the, the intention behind that provision is absolutely obvious, um, that um, there will not be an extension. But another way of reading it is to say a Minister of the Crown may not agree. So it says that he can't agree to a request from the EU, but there's nothing to stop the Minister himself or herself initiating such a request. Now, there are various arguments for and against that point of view, but let's assume you take it... Um, as uh, intended, that it's to stop an extension. But that, even that's not the end of the story because um, the 2020 Act, that's the EU Withdrawal Agreement Act, um, it contains a big Henry VIII clause in Section 41 and this allows ministers to make regulations um, which can repeal provisions of other legislation, including the 2020 Act itself. And this can be done by negative resolution parliament slight problem is parliament is not sitting at the moment
0: fabian i wanted to, to bring you again in again on this point um and i had kind of few questions that you know if the eu are starting to see this as inevitable for a start why would they not ask for it there's nothing in in the withdrawal agreement that prevents them from asking it and obviously one of the big supplementary questions will be for how long And do you think the EU has a view on how long would be necessary?
3: I I think um, why uh, the EU is not asking um, is uh, simply a political consideration um, that um, the EU doesn't want to be seen um, to tell the United Kingdom what should be done in this situation. Um, It should be a decision of the United Kingdom Um, And I think also uh, that applies to the length as well. I don't think uh, the European Union would try um, to push for a certain length. Um, I think um, in many ways, um, the idea of a longer extension would be more attractive, um, but that wouldn't be something uh, which would be necessarily a deal breaker in that situation. Um, I think it would be difficult uh, if it was a very short extension, because in those circumstances, um, there would be a question about how you could make that practically work. Uh, If we have an extension which is not in full years, uh, then that makes it um, even more complicated uh, to deal with the financial obligations uh, the UK would have um, under uh, any extension Um, So I think what uh, the attempt would be to do this as um, practical um, as possible, but also taking into account that we need more time um, to negotiate. And I think that is one point I I wanted to come back on. Um, uh, I think, yes, in an extraordinary situation, there might be pressure to agree, but that doesn't necessarily mean that politically Mm we're any closer to agreement between the two sides. Uh, I would actually argue rather the opposite. Um, So unless one or the other side in these negotiations is willing to concede uh, in quite um, a major way, um, then we are actually quite far from having an agreement um, by the end of the year. Um, There are so many issues which are still unresolved. Um, That's also issues around how the withdrawal agreement is being implemented. Um, one of the big questions is uh, whether the provisions um, which um, become necessary under the Northern Ireland Protocol will be in place by the end of the year. Um, If they are not, uh, we are in a very difficult situation. So I think um, in many ways, uh, both from the economic perspective and um, from the political negotiation perspective, Uh, I think um, the European side would just expect um, that common sense prevails in a situation where you very clearly have force majeure, um, but uh, it cannot be a decision which is only taken by one of the sides. And were you you surprised that this didn't come up even in October when
0: we were negotiating uh, the deal and the revised withdrawal agreement that you know even then if we take coronavirus out of the picture I think you know the EU has concerns over the ability to implement the Northern Ireland protocol in the time available and also uh, to conduct the negotiations. Were you surprised that extending the transition period in the withdrawal agreement when it got reopened in part um, wasn't on the table in October?
3: Well, we we did have the provisions for extension in the withdrawal agreement, and I think that was um, always um, the fallback position that there was the possibility to do that. Um, What we saw was that Boris Johnson and his new government um, made it very public, um, including legislating um, for not uh, extending the transition. Um, So from a European point of view, while that was not seen as the optimal solution um, there was a recognition that this is what you would have to work with and that you would have to simply um, have um, the negotiations much more tighter um, rushing through some of these negotiations Um, we shouldn't also forget that we are not only talking about a deadline by the end of the year we are also talking about deadlines which are already coming up in June. So we are talking about an incredibly short period of time. Um, And I think uh, the recognition was always that it was going to be a very ambitious timetable. Um, But I think I would agree with the comments which were made before that, um, frankly, this now looks um, completely unrealistic. Um, I cannot see how you would actually have um, a deal with all the political um, horse trading, with all the political decisions which have to be taken, uh, with all also the difficult political costs which are involved in this. Um, Someone will have to go back in the middle of uh, an economic crisis and, for example, explain to the fishermen uh, why they have signed up to uh, an agreement which they might not see as particularly favorable to them. So I, I think this is completely unrealistic now. Um, it was already a challenge beforehand, um, but now um, it looks impossible to get to a deal by the end of the year. I think explaining things to fishermen
0: is something that both sides are probably anxious to avoid. (laughs) Um, I had just one more question for you, Fabian, just on the kind of choreography of if the two sides decided they wanted to go for something. You kind of said that the EU's view is that this is now almost inevitable, but it's not going, it's for the UK to ask and for the UK to kind of propose length of time. Um, Do you think there is a way, and this was a question that came in from Hannah Bettsworth, was can you take the heat out of it through choreography, the kind of political heat out of the extension request? And Vince Cable also emailed in to ask whether you think it would be possible for the EU to declare with tacit UK acceptance, the need for a year's standstill. So do you think that the idea that the EU is going to do the UK favours on choreography or even coming out first to say it, do you think that's for the birds?
3: No, I think um, there is always the possibility um, to work on the choreography. Um, if uh, there is an agreement behind the scenes um, that uh, both sides recognise the need um, for having this extension, uh, then to find a way um, of presenting it, um, which works for both sides, I think is is something which the EU would be very willing to do. Um, The only caveat I would put to that um, is uh, that domestic politics doesn't only exist in the UK. Um, For the 27 member states, um, they will have to justify um, whatever they decide with the United Kingdom, uh, they will have to defend those decisions um, and if that is an extension to transition, uh, they will have to explain um, that uh, this is something which has been agreed um, to the mutual benefit of both sides in these negotiations. Um, So I wouldn't uh, expect that the EU27 take the political blame um, for any extension or that um, they would be willing to be a foil uh, to the Eurosceptics um, in uh, the UK, uh, it has to be clear that this is a decision which is taken by both sides. Um, but the EU is willing, um, and I think if the request comes now, um, it would be a relatively painless process where um, the EU would also try as much as possible to not make this confrontational, to not make this controversial Um, But uh, that also assumes that this request comes early enough. Um, If we actually get into um, the situation that the request only comes um, after the June deadline, um, if uh, the UK asks after the end of June, uh, then legally this is no longer covered by the withdrawal agreement then it really gets difficult legally. And I think this is also the point when politically this might get much more Mm -hmm. difficult. Um, So for all of those reasons, um, what would be best is a cooperative approach between the two sides where we sit down now, we work out the practicalities of extension Mm -hmm. and then we get it done uh, before the summer. uh, And that um, I think is imminently possible if the political will is there on both sides.
0: Shankar, do you think stuff like choreography makes a difference for UK ministers? Do you think that if, you know, the EU says, look, we're not going to go hardball on the money, and we're prepared to package this in a way that's politically acceptable on both sides, that will make the decision more straightforward for UK ministers? Or do you think that, you know, the the position is that um, they do not want to extend transition, and choreography doesn't make a difference? And actually, if they were to propose it, they would want to seriously revisit the terms of transition? Is that one of the kind of points you were making earlier?
2: Well, I think uh, at a high level, um, uh, the UK government clearly does not want to, you know, at the moment, extend the uh, transition. Um, The reasons for that, and I think there's a bit of a disconnect between the two sides on this. and, and, And if you go back to uh, David Frost's Brussels speech, um, you know, he sort of laid out why uh, they don't want to extend the transition, which is, I think, sometimes not um, particularly well underst- understood outside of the UK. Um, this issue, uh, and it's, I think, a mistake to underestimate the importance of UK, quotes, independence uh, to this government, to this UK government. And that's the reason Frost basically said, you know, why would we want to uh, delay that? Why would we want to delay that um, independence? Now, granted, he said this before coronavirus um, hit, but we were hearing the same sorts of arguments even then, and you and you made them today. That um, you know, it was a very short, um, it was a very short period to negotiate all the things that needed to be negotiated. It was clearly a very ambitious. Uh, timeline, anyway, even before coronavirus, yet he was saying um, uh, that uh, why would we want to extend that? Because they want to get on with doing the things that they need to do. Now, if there is some uh, perhaps recognition of the difficulties that the, the Johnson administration in particular has with elements of the transition period, where if you go back to the negotiations for the transition period originally, There was a lot of back and forth about, you know, what the UK would be able to do in the transition period. Would it be under the common commercial policy? There was quite a hard fought battle about the provisions of the transition period where the UK was able to negotiate, sign, you know, ratify and sign deals during the implementation period, admittedly not to implement them until afterwards, but to do all those other things. That was a, you know, that was a a UK... Uh, ask that was you know quite hard hard fought so there are elements of the transition period um the the, the uk's position as a rule taker the common commercial policy um where i think if there's some de-linkage you know in terms of choreography you might be talking about calling it something else um i think uh, recognizing recognizing the pause that has occurred in the global economy is a better pathway to a result. I think sort of saying we're going to extend the transition period by making a request before June almost um, almost negates the the fact that the reason for all of this is the is the outbreak of COVID-19. Um, clearly, something has happened that the parties didn't envisage at the time. And I think it's more legitimate. I'm not saying it is legitimate or the government would do it, but I'm, I think it's more legitimate to say let's recognise the pause in, in the global economy, somehow, uh, and that might be a better pathway to um, to what we might inevitably have to do, but we just don't we just don't know at, at this moment what what we may have to do.
0: Yeah. Okay. And Ali, are you you've kind of set out quite clearly that the the top priority for business is enough time from when there's certainty about what is changing until when it comes into force. Are you guys concerned that if we get extra time? in um june and there is a decision to extend for all of the kind of reasons and with the caveat that we've set out that that just gets eaten up for negotiations and you still end up back in the same position of a deal being done weeks maybe a month or two out from the point at which it needs to come into force and then you guys are having to ask for additional time again is that is that a big concern
4: it's certainly an occupational hazard um it's a, it's a it's such a unique set of negotiations, and while everyone on the at a superficial level knows that, sometimes I think people forget it. So you know, the easiest way of of illustrating that being that um, in the run up to uh, the first potential No Deal date, um, industry was asking government uh, and the EU, uh, but insofar as what they could control, at least the UK government to provide clear information on what their contingent sort of um, plans in practical detail, not just in theory, were going to be for the Irish border. Um, And we never got those. I don't think there was an update from... The, the sort of theoretical one side of an A4 page piece of paper setting out what they might do um, in March, and then uh, in October that was that had never been updated. So I think with that in mind, you start to worry a lot about how much time has actually been given between. Similarly, for the tariff changes, the tariff changes that were brought in for sort of provisional no deal schedule, those were brought in um, a couple of weeks before we were due to potentially have that no deal exit. So with that in mind, there's a lot of concern about, you know. Um, hindsight as well, reflecting the fact that you have all of these, what I'd like to call language gymnastics around what you call extra time and what the extra time is for. And because there's been this conflation about what a transition period is, what it's for, what an implementation period is, what it's for, it's frustrating that that has ever been called an implementation period, what we're currently in. And I think that's obviously a hangover from the previous administration, um, trying to trying to I remember these arguments um, You know, months after the negotiations began, after the Article 50 letter was sent um, about the fact that it was going to be called the implementation period. And that obviously reflected the fact that the government naturally, as, as I think everyone in the UK particularly, wanted to do from business to government, there was a universal voice on this to make sure that there was a parallel process of negotiating the withdrawal agreement and the future relationships. So ultimately, that never happened. And we are now in that implementation period negotiating the actual future relationships. So because of that conflation around implementation, around the transition period, around extension, um, there is a risk. And I think actually last year, there was a minister, a treasury minister, making this point um, in terms of what dates were going to be used for the extension of um, uh, Article 50 was to say, well, what if we get to a point at which you know um, the, negotiation fin- the, the negotiations finish the day before, um, are you just adjusting immediately thereafter? So we don't want there to be sort of accidental oops. We need to find a way to make sure that there's an actual adjustment period here. Now, I am not saying that there is not preparation that business stakeholders and government can cannot do. That carries on behind the scenes. You know, we are still uh, getting um, uh, some communications from government departments around border um, changes that the that the deadline hasn't changed, but the actual detail is not there yet. And um, there is only so much that HMRC. And, you know, I think there's a lot of discussion about the fact that um, uh, the EU doesn't want to extend the transition either. Well, actually, I think their member states, if someone turned around and said, you have to now, because there's no FTA, put this in place... Um, you know, I, I would, I would challenge the argument actually that says that, um, uh, the EU and the member states should actually want to just say, get on with it. Um, the negotiations, yes, but if there is no free trade agreement at the end of that, I think that they'll be pretty annoyed to have to compound their existing woes by making all these changes that, yes, were contingency planned for 12 months ago, but will be ultimately be slightly different to what the withdrawal agreement, no, the, the the no deal, the two types of no deal situation was going to be. So that's my biggest concern, is making sure that we don't have that oops moment where we now have to figure out a legal basis for having that extra implementation phase.
0: And again, more, more difficult conversations about fish, presumably, in that scenario too. Fabian, do you want to come back on this?
3: I just wanted to to make one point about um, how far the European Union um, is willing to compromise. Um, I think it is important to recognize that, yes, the European Union um, is willing to compromise um, uh, when it comes to issues around how we name it, how we do the choreography. Um, I think, yes, there are things which can be done. Um, But I think uh, we also have to recognize uh, that when it comes to the substance of this, Um, then the European Union is not going to solve the UK's domestic problems. In a very real sense, um, the European Union has far more important things to do. Um, The focus is very much on other issues. Uh, Brexit is a distraction um, for uh, dealing with the crisis, and exactly for that reason – um, an extension to transition is the only thing which makes sense. Um, but if the UK is not going to go there, um, then the EU 27 um, are not going to bend over backwards to make sure that it happens. Um, they will uh, deal with the situation as it is, uh, recognizing that this imposes additional cost. Um, but in the end, uh, this remains um, an issue uh, predominantly for the United Kingdom Uh, whereas uh, between the 27, the real focus is going to be uh, not only for the next few weeks, not only for this lockdown, uh, but for certainly the next few months, if not the next years. uh, The focus is going to be on what we do in response to this unprecedented crisis, uh, which is uh, creating existential challenges uh, right across the European Union. Uh, So um, I'm afraid that uh, for the UK government, uh, there will be very little give um, if that is what they require to um, finally see the sense in uh, an extension to transition. Catherine, I have a, a couple of questions for
0: you. The first one actually is a question from Naomi Smith, and you can hear it straight from Naomi's mouth.
4: Naomi Smith, Chief Executive of the pro-internationalism campaign Best for Britain here. My question to the panel is whether we could possibly reach an agreement with the EU to get a flex extension, so a year-long extension, but with the possibility to come to an extension agreement again if we're not out of the woods on corona by the time it ends. Thanks ever so much.
1: I think legally that's rather difficult to have that sort of flex tension because if you look at um, the relevant article, it says um the joint committee adopts a single decision extending the transition period for up to 1 or 2 years now um it i suppose the, the single decision could say um flexibility up to 2 years it might be more sensible to agree for 2 years and then say but um if the agreement is done before that then of course um it can be, the, the agreement will then, the, the, sorry, if the agreement's done before that, then transition comes to an end, or perhaps 18 months. The trouble is that's where politics and law um, collide because, of course, the optics of having a two year extension don't look very appealing um, to this government. I mean, if we were pr- practical, of course, at the moment, with all of the focus rightly on coronavirus, the, the time to actually ask for a, um, an extension would be now because there would be presumably not much um, political backlash against it. But, of course, Parliament's not sitting in order to be able to make the changes to domestic law that would be needed. So the legal problem is you're meant to ask by um, the end of June for an extension. Um, The question is, what happens if we don't ask then? Now, Article 132 doesn't cover that situation, but what happens if we get to October, November time and we discover that the the negotiations aren't going well or that a lot of key people are sick um, because there's a second wave of coronavirus? How do we actually ask for an extension um, outside the normal frame? And this is where there's quite a lot of uh, legal debate. Um, some people say, well, um, Article 50 has been turned off. It was turned off on the 31st of January, so you can't use that. Other people say, well, under international law, it's quite possible to um, amend the terms of an existing agreement. And you can do that still on the basis of Article 50. There's, a lo- there's a quite a lot of debate about that. The EU position, I think, is Article 50 is turned off and therefore you'd need to use another legal basis in the treaty whether it be Article 207 or 217. And that gets us into the problems I mentioned right at the beginning about if it's 217, that requires all the national um, and regional parliaments to ratify if it's a mixed agreement. And then um, before you know it, um, all of that's taking much longer. So there are lots of complexities if we don't ask by June.
0: So, yeah, so June is is not necessarily uh, the point of no return, but it is the easiest point in which... If you wanted to secure more time, I mean, Fabian, do you think that's true that if, you know, the two sides came together in October time, for example, and said, look, we need a bit more time for negotiation or for ratification or for just giving businesses more time to prepare, they wouldn't say, well, you missed your chance back in. Would they constructively engage and look for more time?
3: I mean, I, I would say that uh, the assumption would be uh, that uh, they would um, try to find a way um, to get more time. Um, I think this uh, is legally tricky, um, but most likely it would end up uh, with um, some form of mixed agreement, uh, which would be there to prolong uh, what in effect would be the transition period. Um But then we get into politically much more uncertain territory because that means that uh, we will have to get everyone on board to agree to this. Um, And that means also, um, as we have seen with other mixed agreements, uh, it has to go down uh, to the regional level in some of the member states. Um, And if there's any particular issue, if there's anything... um, which a member state might then want to put on the table, um, they can block the whole process. Um, I'm not saying they necessarily will, uh, but the risk is certainly there. And all of this assumes um, that we are even able to do that at that point in time. Um, If we are in a situation where we continue to have severe limitations, for example, On parliament sitting. Um, I have my doubts that we can actually ratify anything um, by that point. Um, If we try to find a different solution um, uh, then uh, the European Court might strike it down um, and we might create an even greater uncertainty. And I think this is one of the big messages um, I would have um, for uh, any um, decision to only extend after June I think it might still be possible um, but what you're doing is you're multiplying the uncertainty Uh, and certainly from a business perspective um, but also from a government perspective um, that then aggravates the planning problem. You are in a situation where you don't know what is going to happen, you don't know whether the extension really is going to um, happen or not um, which I think is the worst um, of all worlds uh, if you end up hoping for an extension and then it doesn't happen. Um, So I think, um, uh, as Catherine was saying, uh, it gets a lot more difficult after June um, and it's not a complication we should be adding at this point.
0: Okay, so before we finish, uh, to quickly summarise, I think where we've got to is that there are potential reasons for an extension that will grow and grow the longer the coronavirus lockdown and implications uh, for the economy last and that by June we really should know more and will probably need to know more as that is um, the easiest uh, place to secure additional time. However, it does not necessarily answer the question that many businesses will want answered of how do they ensure there's sufficient time between knowing what's going to change and it changing. So finally, to wrap up At the very end, I wanted to ask you all for very quick reflections, um, quick-fire questions of do you think the transition will be extended, if so, when and by how long? I will start with you, Catherine. Sorry to put Uh, you on the spot. Yes,
1: um, June and up to a year.
3: Okay, Fabian? I think it is um, still very uncertain because it depends in the end on the political will Uh, of uh, the Johnson government, Uh, it is uh, in the end their decision whether they inflict uh, this chaos uh, at this point or not.
2: Okay, Shankar, I I don't think the UK government at the moment has any appetite for extending this transition period um, uh, at the moment. I think they're very focused on, uh, as Ross said, moving forward and I think that um, desire to uh, start to execute on their independence as it were uh, is probably even greater as a result of the coronavirus and the economic um, sort of emergency measures they're going to have to uh, undertake in order to get out of this um, current crisis and kickstart the economy. Um, I would differentiate between negotiations of the deal In other words, the two parties negotiating with each other and trying to bridge bridgeable differences and what you might call an implementation process of ratification and of business preparedness and so forth. I think those are two very, very separate things. I think the UK government was quite firm on the first and and might be a, a
0: bit more flexible on the second. Okay, thank you very much. And then finally, Ali.
4: Um, I, I was tempted to go with Catherine's consensus of a June extension up to a year only, um, having listened to Shanker on reflection, I wonder how much creativity this can be with the language. I mean, obviously the issue here is if it's not, if you're guaranteeing or you're trying to provide that cover. To have that actual adjustment implementation period, how much extra work legally, particularly what's the legal basis for it, how much extra work does that actually create versus it just being easier to extend in the end, which may mean that you have an extension later on. But I also question um, uh, uh, how much the EU is willing to jump through hoops legally after June if it's a different legal base to try and put that in play. The only other thing I'd say really quickly is it's not that there aren't reasons to not extend. I think that coronavirus has Uh, foister the argument about whether um, it makes more sense to bring certain things back under your control. But the counter challenge I would put to there is that it depends on whether the EU is doing a lot of things that actually makes the UK response to coronavirus harder. And so far, the evidence is, you know, the export restrictions, they don't seem to really be being put in place from a UK standpoint, so we don't seem to be limited. I think the argument there is more around tariffs. So to sum up i'd say that there are reasons potentially for not extending but you would have to set them against what you don't like what's coming out of brussels and i'm not sure whether there's a huge amount on that front right now
0: okay brilliant thank you very much um thank you very much to all of you for joining uh and joining our ifg live event series and thank you very much for everyone listening watch out there will be more events coming your way very soon